But I want to uh, start this evening um, with a quick reflection on an earlier part of my life, some of my younger years. Um, don't worry, that's not what this whole sermon is going to be about. Um, I spent years of my life fighting what I would say was a purely uh, moral battle. Um, perhaps a better way of putting it is a guilt battle. Uh, this might be familiar with you. Uh, I, was a, I was a Christian at the time, and as such, to some extent, I understood, I knew the actions that I should be producing in my life, uh, and yet I saw other things emerging in me. I struggled with, for instance, lust, and I struggled with my own lethargy and laziness, and I struggled with my desire for my own glory. That's, that's really just a beautiful little ice, maybe not beautiful, ice, iceberg tip summary of uh, many years of my life, actually. Perhaps, perhaps most concerningly, I struggled against those things, though against my sin, primarily by the power of the guilt that they produced in me. I probably wouldn't have put it like that at the time. Uh, but looking back, that's absolutely the field that I chose to fight those battles on. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder if that does sound familiar to you. Uh, I think this is a really common experience for Christians. We, we struggle with particular areas of sin in our lives. Uh, and our fight looks something like turning to sin, sinning, uh, realizing how unsatisfying and how terrible and how guilty that makes us feel, uh, and, and feeling the guilt of that and, and wallowing in it and really believing that, that that terrible feeling of guilt will somehow ward us off, act as a, as a deterrent towards future sin in that area. Am I, am I the only person who's experienced that? Right. Good. Right. Well, maybe not good. I don't know. But uh, it certainly make the rest of this illustration pointless. But, uh, we say that we believe in Jesus to save us from our sin, but functionally, when, when push comes to shove, when we feel the need to be saved from particular sin in our lives, we turn to the terrible guilt we've experienced, that we've felt in the past, as a sort of a, a negative motivation. A deterrent. But what we'll see today from God's word is that we're never actually called uh, to fight purely moral battles. Because, because our faith exists much deeper than just morals. Uh, our motivation and power in the battle against sin goes much deeper than the guilt that it makes us feel. The battleground of our faith is the heart. But I just remembered, I have slides. Now, Mark read out uh, that passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 just before. That's where we're going to be seating ourselves down. Uh, we're going to center in, in fact, just on basically one verse of that, two-ish, four and five, okay? Um, but mostly five. And, but before we really dive into it, it's worth asking the question very quickly, uh, what's the relevance of this passage to us today? That's something you should ask as you approach different parts of the Bible. Is it relevant to us today? If so, in what sense is it relevant to us today? The Old Testament law was given to national Israel, and it's absolutely fair and right to say that you can't go to the book of Deuteronomy and make always make a one-to-one application of every text for us. For instance, uh, it would be a gross misappropriation of Scripture to go to Deuteronomy chapter 14 uh, in verse 10 and say that we are prohibited from eating any sea creature that lacks fins and scales, although why would you? They're gross. Uh, likewise, from the same chapter, we wouldn't say that we wouldn't say that pigs 
are unclean for us to eat, even though Deuteronomy 14 does say that for the people of Israel. Thank heavens they're delicious, right? Like, who doesn't like pig? Come on. Is anyone here vegan or vegetarian? I'm so sorry. I hope not. Um, I was sitting next to a vegan guy once in a church service uh, when when the, the pastor commented on something similar to that and went and, and just spent a bit of time dwelling on how delicious pigs are and you could see the agitation. It was really uncomfortable. Anyway, I should have learned a lesson right then, but I didn't evidently. Uh, that, that, let's recenter here. That doesn't mean that the law has no relevance for us at all today. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and that this righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We're no longer under the law. Biblical fact, right there. But he finishes the same line of thinking with this in in Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by faith, he asks. That is, does it now not matter what we do? We are free to throw away the law to live without these things leading us because we have faith and can do whatever we want, right? Is that right? And Paul's answer is, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And tonight we are addressing a passage that is the central passage of the whole Old Testament law. It's it's very core. And we're going to see that it still contains a really relevant message for us today, uh, even though it affects us somewhat differently this side of the cross. Uh, Because we're just jumping into a passage in the Old Testament, the other good thing to do would be to have a look at the the context super briefly, because uh, not all of us are going to know where we're at in in Deuteronomy 6 as far as what's going on. Uh, In the first chapter of Deuteronomy, we learn uh, the context and the content of that book. The context is that the people of Israel have travelled in the wilderness for 40 years. Coming out of Egypt, a whole generation that was uh, just, just young adults then have died in this time. They've grown old and died. And they've come out of slavery, and now they're, they're preparing to cross the Jordan River. They're on the eve of crossing the Jordan River and entering the land that God had promised to them and to their ancestors. This is this really culminative moment in the history of God's people as, as he prepares to deliver to them the land that he'd promised to, to them and to their ancestors more than 400 years previously. And that the content of almost the entire book is that on this fateful eve, as they prepare to enter in, Moses speaks to the people and explains God's law, God's word to them. The book is a detailed explanation of God's law for the people of Israel. The the old covenant law, that is. In chapters 1 to 4, Moses has has rehashed the story, uh, rehashed for the people of Israel the, the old uh, the the path that they'd come along in the wilderness between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land, uh, in time in which they had experienced the discipline of God for their repeated rebellions against him. And, and from chapter 5, Moses starts to unpack the law for them, starting with the, the Ten Commandments. And as we join this passage uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, he reaches this pivotal point from chapter 6, verse 4, and, he's, and here's what Moses says. Come with me to it. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now for two verses, 
there is a surprising amount in there that we as Christians tend to come to with a lot of false assumptions. Uh, Take, for instance, the whole of verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, on the the surface, I think we Christians, uh, particularly Christians who've who've grown up or lived in Bible-preaching churches for some time, we look at that, and and particularly uh, for us, we go, oh, right, monotheism, right? Uh, Check, done, moving on. But although this verse obviously does support a theology of monotheism, monotheism is the idea that there is one God and one God alone, Uh, it actually has a stronger and deeper point than that, that we are prone to miss. We can equally translate the Hebrew words here, the Lord our God, uh, sorry, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And the, the purpose of it, especially given the context, is to lay something down like there is only one God for us. Or perhaps God's people are not to worship any other God except for God. It certainly doesn't say less than that there's only one God. Don't get me wrong here. But in a world filled with people who were worshipping false gods, supposed gods, and amongst a people, Israel themselves, who had already faced and fallen to the temptation to worship other gods, this was a, a clear statement. There's only one God for us. And you can see then how that flows into what comes next, can't you? You shall love the Lord your God. There's only one God for us. You shall love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This command is not just the centre of this passage. It is, like I said, the very core of the Old Testament law. We see it repeated again and again, actually like eight times throughout the book of Deuteronomy in some shape or form. And, And Jesus confirmed this this fact for us as well in accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when asked by an expert in the law what was the most important commandment, he quoted this. But yet again, here we find uh, words that come with assumptions, like heart. What does heart mean? You know, love the Lord with all your heart. I think maybe we come to that and we go, oh, yeah, it's, it's where your feelings come from, right? You know, heart, done. Or maybe uh, uh, earth, water, heart, fire, heart. You guys are all above the Captain Planet generation. And, and I wasn't allowed to watch it anyway because it was rubbish. But uh, anyway. Um, <coughs> soul, okay? Bible word. We know what that means, right? It's kind of like your spirit or some such. Next. Might, duh, might. It means like your strength whatnot. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Moving on. Actually, each of these words uh, comes with much more weight than that. Much more weight than we tend to be familiar with when we read them, to such a point that it's really difficult to overstate how big what is being commanded here is. The heart in Israelite culture, for instance, was not primarily understood in Disney terms. Uh, it wasn't the, the, the feeling centre that we often take it to be today, or at least, at the very least, it was not just that. That was, that was a minimal side note. When this passage was written, the heart was under, understood to be the, the seat of the desires, the will, the thoughts, the passions, and the affections of a person. 
So when Moses says, love the Lord with all your heart, he is commanding all of God's people's desires to be centered on God. All of their affections centered on him. All of their passions directed towards him. All their thoughts and everything, even their will, right, should be focused on God. That's a big thing, isn't it? Think about the passions and the desires that you have. You've had many of them since you arrived at this house today, right? Maybe if you arrived hungry, you saw the communion and you thought, ooh, there's a conflicting desire. I want to worship God, but I'm also hungry for some bread. And, and it says all of your heart's desires. Like your whole heart is to be for God. Love him with all of it. The soul outright just has very little to do with some disembodied spirit concept. That's something we've adopted from Greek culture, ancient Greek culture. Uh, and that's what we think of a soul as today, but that's not what it is. Uh, to get an idea of what Moses is really getting at here, it's worth looking at a few other instances of this word in Scripture. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, you're probably familiar with this verse. Verse 7, we read, The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That word, creature, is the same root Hebrew word, as the one here translated, soul. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, we read, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Their descendants and persons also both come from this same word that we see here as soul. And there, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of, of instances of this word in the Old Testament. It's somewhere around 700 Right? And they make it really clear that the, the meaning of the word is something like, uh, this is the best I could come up with, your person or your being. So, so when we read, love the Lord with all your soul, it seems what's being said is, is even bigger than the heart. Or it's something that's expanding out another layer from the heart. With all your being, with everything that you are, love the Lord. Now, that presents a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it, uh, when we're reading this passage? Because uh, it doesn't leave much room for what your, your strength or your might could be, right? Certainly, the whole of your person and being would encompass your physical strength, correct? Uh, but once uh, again, might turns out to be something bigger than we would assume. The word in Hebrew really means very. It's, it's, it's usually an adverb. Uh, if you're, if you're a not a grammar person here, or if you are a grammar person, you'll understand what I mean just now. If you're not a grammar person, smile and nod like you do because the Nazis are watching. But it's helpful to note that when the Jews translated this passage into Greek, they chose a term meaning power. Love the Lord with all your power. And when it was translated into Aramaic, they chose a word that means wealth. Love the Lord with all your wealth. And from those facts and from what we know about the word, uh, some, I believe rightly, conclude that there is the idea here of just everything at your disposal. All of your power, all of your money, all of your possessions, uh, use everything you have to love the Lord. So when we put that together, we get love the Lord with all the driving forces within you. 
your, your will, your passions, your desires, your affections and thoughts. Love the Lord with all that you are and with all, with everything that you have at your disposal. Love the Lord. Isn't that bigger than it looked at first? And yet it's also important to note that there's a, a sequence to what happens there, right? The heart comes first. Love always begins in the heart and works its way out. Never the other way around. Uh, another, another way of saying that is that true obedience to God has to start in the heart. If your heart has not, was not solely devoted to God, if your heart isn't solely loving towards God, then your being, your person, never would be, and your possessions never would be. Everything at your disposal would not be solely spent in loving him. Perhaps an easier way, again, of putting it is that if, you, if your heart is devoted to something other than God, then your being, your means, that will always follow suit. That's why Jesus quoted Isaiah to the Pharisees when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You might even give the impression of honouring God, right, with your outside, but you do not truly honour him, you do not truly love him if your heart is far from him. In fact, Moses, in the verses following our passage, he teaches the obedience that flows from this heart. And that's so important to get, because otherwise you could read this passage and reach a different conclusion, but it starts with the heart. He, he teaches these things that flow out of having a heart that loves the Lord. His law is written on their heart, and as a result, what does he say? He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Basically, Moses tells them, have God's law, have God's word permeate your entire life. The point here is that if you love God with your whole heart, you will love him and his ways with your entire life, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And if you don't love him with all of your heart, you might still be a Pharisee. You might be renowned for your knowledge of Scripture. They were. You might attach a little leather box containing some of the law to the middle of your forehead between your eyebrows in apparent obedience to the Scripture. Put that in the modern day. You might walk around with your, uh, with your nice faux leather Bible uh, everywhere and look like a proper Christian. And you might think that you're obeying what the Bible says, but Jesus called the Pharisees. Who can think of any terms that Jesus called the Pharisees, right? Brood of vipers. Who said whitewashed tombs? Thank you, Mark. Whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside. Dead within. Because they looked good, but inside, in their hearts, they didn't obey God's law. They didn't love God. And really, it's not just them, is it? You know, we can, we can pick on Pharisees all day long. It's a favourite church pastime sometimes. But uh, this, this passage presents a problem for absolutely everyone. Let me explain, uh, and we'll start in the Old Testament. The universal witness of the Old Testament history of Israel is that they were incapable of having a heart that loved God. Think about it. Uh, 
name the person in the Old Testament, right, whose heart was so, uh, whose heart so loved God that they, their actions were sinless. Immediately, we think of people who make half a verse's reference because there's a chance, right? But, but, but take a quick walk with me through the, the broader theme of it, right? Between Moses and Jesus. The repeated refrain of the book of Judges, right? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's a time that started one generation after our passage today. And it gets worse in the books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. There we find kings who are almost universally described with words like this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and made Israel to sin. The leaders of Israel, that is. So great was the sin of Israel that their kings that we read in Second Chronicles, uh, sorry, and their kings that we read in Second Chronicles, it says that they were actually worse than the idol-worshipping, child-sacrificing pagans that had inhabited the land before them. Finally, after several hundred years of worsening sin from the people and patient discipline and rescue from God that lasted and lasted and lasted, God sends enemy armies to destroy his people and to take those that remain into exile. And after 70 years in exile, God fulfills another promise and the people of Judea are able to return. But from that time on, the nation is subject to foreign powers and the culture develops which by the time of Jesus is characterized by this work-centered obedience of the Pharisees, which lacked genuine love for the Lord. In short, Israel were for hundreds of years incapable of keeping God's law because they did not love him with their whole heart. And do you know our reaction to the performance of Israel under the old covenant should absolutely not be to look at them and to say, my goodness, they stuffed it up, didn't they? (laughs) What a bunch of idiots. I mean, it's obvious that in response to all of God's grace and kindness, they should have obeyed, right? I would have done it, wouldn't you? Or worse still, we could look at it and think, oh gosh, God chose the wrong people, didn't he? They did mess it up terribly. It's true. They did turn away from God and pursue false gods and even reach the point where they could be described as worse than the nations around them. It's true they did, but what we should take from that is that humanity as a whole, every single one of us, when given the best possible conditions for loving God and following God on their own, given his righteous law in writing, you know, so he'd go back and read it again and again and again, blessed with a good land in which to fulfill it, given the the special presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple and his word delivered again and again by prophets and a sacrificial system which allowed them to remain with him even if they did sin, given all that and more, the best that humanity can do is to hate God and run from him. Have you read in the New Testament, in the crucifixion narratives, the number of times there that the authors make it really clear that not just anyone was having Jesus killed. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Those three groups in, are, are listed, I think, nine times in Mark's Gospel alone. In case you don't know who that is, the elders were the representative leaders of Judea who were to guide the people. The scribes were the ultimate experts in God's law. They knew inside out the words that God had given to his people. 
and the chief priests were the highest echelon of the people who were to lead God's people in worshipping him. In summary, if you were to pick three groups of people at the time of Jesus, of all of the people on the earth uh, who should have recognised and worshipped the incarnate Son of God and called others to do the same, these were them, right? The elders, the scribes, and the chief priests. And it was their cries for blood that drove God's only Son to death on a cross. And if that's what the people who were most familiar with God's word, most trained to worship him, amongst all of the peoples of the earth, if that's what they did, then that says something about the whole of humanity, doesn't it? We can't love God. In the best conditions, given every opportunity on our own, we hate God and we cry out for his blood. It reflects onto all of us. And the tension here that you may be feeling is real. God called his people to love him. Not just to complete a set of rituals like other gods had called for, uh, which would appease him, but to love him with all of their heart. To have him as the chief desire of their hearts, to adore him from the depths of their being, but people are just not able to do it. Our hearts won't stop pursuing the things we love the most to love God instead. And because we can't love him with our whole hearts, we won't love him with our soul or with our strength. But in the prophet Ezekiel and in the prophet Jeremiah as well, at a time when God's people were at the the pinnacle of that process of, of sin and rebellion that we looked at before, we find this outrageous promise from God. God says he will give his people a new heart. In fact, the words he speaks to both of those prophets are, I will give them one heart. That is, a heart which is solely focused in love on God. And in the New Testament, we discover exactly how he does this. God came down. Jesus came and he did what we failed to do. He loved God with everything. His God was one. He was focused on only one God, and he died on the cross to give us a new heart. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God gave the promise that he would uh, make a new covenant with his people, in which he would write his law on their hearts. In the next chapter of Jeremiah, he promises that he will make his people a people of one heart, like I mentioned before. And Jesus says on on the night before he died, that his blood initiated the new covenant. The only one who loved God with his all died as the spotless sacrifice that brought us a new heart. Do you see the death of Jesus begins something so much bigger than the covenant we find in Deuteronomy? The new covenant is the same in the sense that God's people are to love him with their whole heart, but it is by God's working that that happens, not by our efforts. I commented at the start that the the battleground of our faith is the heart. That remains true, but the war of the heart is won by God. God gives his people new hearts, hearts that aren't carried to and fro, that aren't flying between unsatisfying idols, but are fixed on the one true God who satisfies. We couldn't 
have a heart that loved God fully, and so we couldn't have a soul that loved God fully. And so we couldn't live lives where the love of God flowed out, but through the gospel, God gives us a new heart. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes in in chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, incidentally, side note, go head down the the Middleton Cemetery sometime and try and get a dead person to, to be alive, right? That's where we were. Tell them to to get out. Hop on out of that tomb. See how many of them are doing it by themselves. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, which is to say, that that whole thing encapsulated right there, your heart was devoted to the world, not to God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We couldn't do it ourselves. We were dead in sin, but God has made the change that we couldn't. And the gospel does not just swap out an old heart for a new heart. Uh, It reveals to us that God, more than anything else, is deserving of all of our love. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 4 that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. By God's work in our hearts, we now see that God is incomparably glorious. And we see that that in the face of Jesus, in his person and work, in the fact that God's love has been poured out on us in the sending of his son, in God coming as a man and dying for the people whose hearts, souls and minds hated him so that they might be returned to the joy of knowing and and dwelling with the one perfectly true and ultimately satisfying God. So I have a couple of things to ask you today. First, and I know you all, And yet I still insist on asking this question. Do you know the God that I'm talking about? Have you come to know and to love the God who is showing you immeasurable love? Has he changed your heart? It's not enough to have said, well, I believe this set of truths. If it hasn't changed your life, if he hasn't changed your heart, there's something missing here. And if, if that's you, if you if, even if you've listened to this today and you've gone, wow, you know, I haven't been moved to actually love God. I thought this was a set of rituals. I thought it was a, a system by which I come to church every week or by which I do these things and thereby I'm saved. Or I, I, I thought that if I just kind of mentally assented to a few facts, I didn't know that love was involved. I didn't know this depth of love was involved. If that's you, let me tell you, only he can change you. You can't do it. There's no set of rituals. There's no set of things you can do to change you. Only he can give you a new heart so that you will love him as you should. And in his grace, he's done the work to make that possible. 
the war for your heart is won. Won or lost, in fact, depending on God's presence in your life. Depending on his action. The work needed to make you right with him and to to give you a heart for him has been done when Jesus died on the cross. And he calls you to repent of all of those things you have followed and pursued in the past. All of the other things that have held your heart and throw yourself at his mercy. He forgives and he changes people and he's faithful to do so. If that's you, please have a chat to Matt after the service or me or Crystal or whoever, you know. There's plenty of people here who can sit down and pray with you and will rejoice at that conversation. Don't be afraid. I wanted to give a challenge to those of us also who have experienced this change, who've received with joy the good news that Jesus died for your sins and has so changed your heart to see God as he is and to love him. What do you do when you see uh, that your life isn't displaying the actions of a heart that loves God? That's something that we get, isn't it? That's something that happens. Do you try to fight that with good actions? Or maybe even try to make up for your sin with good actions afterwards. Perhaps you struggle with how you use your money, but to justify that, you give a bit to a church. We don't give you that opportunity yet, unfortunately. But, uh, but, well, but, but this is the thing, right? Guilt giving. We sometimes give to things because we feel like we have been using our other money inappropriately and out of guilt we go and give money or we offer it to the poor. It's a good thing to give to a church. Don't hear me deterring you from that. It's a good thing to give to the poor, but I hope you don't do it out of the guilt of your sin, but out of the joy that is in God. Have you ever noticed that if you do something you're not proud of, it's immediately much easier, miraculously easier to do nice things and to serve others? Have you come across that? I've come across that. You know, for instance, uh, if I know that I've sinned against my wife, Crystal, right here, you know, it is suddenly miraculously easy for me to do the housework and to look after the kids and to make sure that she can get to bed early. You can tell how good a husband I am, in fact, by how often I don't do those things because I obviously don't sin against her. To respond to sin with good actions, though, is like post-it noting a car to paint it. Covering it in post-its, right? It might give the appearance of change. A car covered in post-it notes is a different colour to a car that's not covered in post-it notes. And yet drive it down the road and they all blow off. And it's gone before you know it. Another, another good way of looking at it is, uh, has anyone here heard of a guy called Paul Tripp? He's got this wonderful analogy. Uh, the Bible talks about the good things that come out in our life being fruit that come from the roots of, of the love for God that we've been talking about. And he says, sometimes we just try to do apple nailing instead. You get out the nail gun and you get a bucket of apples and you go up to the tree and you're, and you're, you're, you're trying to just, and, and like, does that change the tree? Is the tree any better for it? What do you have a week later? Dead apples. You've got rotten apples. <laughs> And that's all you have. And I've got so far off the reservation here that I've forgotten where I was on stage. <laughs> but the problem is that that goodness, if we're trying to do that, it only exists in response to guilt and not as an outworking of a heart that loves God. 
that sort of goodness never lasts. And in the end, it isn't even, in the biblical sense, even good. Or do you just let yourself pursue the sin? That's the thing that happens. Perhaps you struggle with lust, and if you're honest, some days you put up a lot less of a struggle. Lust might not be your thing. Insert here, you know. But I've been there, right? It's a dark place to be. Let me tell you, there is a right response to the presence of sin, and those are not it. As we've seen, sinful actions aren't... Uh, uh, sorry, sinful actions always come out from the heart, right? That is, they are always the result of something taking a higher position, desire, and passion in our hearts than God. I don't spend my money in the wrong places by accident. That's not a thing. Um, if I live a lavish lifestyle and I let the poor starve, it's because I think that my comfort is God. It's the top priority. It's the thing that I worship. Lust isn't an accidental byproduct of the world around you. Pornography isn't the primary problem. You don't need porn to lust. You just need a heart that wants to lust. And this applies to all of our struggles with sin. The core problem that leads me, that leads us to sin, is always what I love in my heart. We... Everything you ever do will be an action out of desire. We never act contrary to our desires, even if we are acting out of a desire to avoid something painful. And the war for the desires of your heart is won by God. The only one who can change our hearts is God. And his tool for doing that is the good news of Jesus applied by the Spirit in our hearts. That's just as true for Christians who are struggling with lingering sin as it is for someone who's never believed the truth and needs to for the first time. True righteousness only comes out of love for God, and true love for God is only made possible by the working of God's love for us in the gospel. So the right response to sin in our lives is to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Go to him. In prayer, go to him. Ask him to show us again his glory as revealed in the perfectly loving death and resurrection of Jesus. And the only meaningful preventative for sin in our lives is to pursue the new desire that he has given us. If you're a Christian, he has given us that. It's in your heart. He changed your heart. So you have that desire and you can pursue it. Saturate your life with the gospel. Drive, uh, sorry, dive into the word of God. Remind yourself and those around you every day that God is better than anything that this world could offer you. And you know that with full certainty because he, the glorious creator of everything, sent his only son to bring you back to him. You might remember at the start of this message, I mentioned my moral battles with lust, laziness, and personal glory. Here's, a, here's something you really should know about me if you're going to be a part of this church. Those are still battles. The Bible is really clear. Every Christian is to expect to be fighting against the desires of the flesh while we're in this world. 
there, there are some people who tell you that, that, that a Christian can be sinless. Uh, that's not a thing. Well, actually, it is a thing. It's an over-realized eschatology. That will happen when Jesus comes back. But for now, we fight sin in our lives. Pastors by no means excluded. My experience has been, though, that the truth of the gospel, the, the revealed character of God that we see in our, our crucified, risen, and exalted Lord, the good news of God's mercy has changed those battlefields for me. They were a place where I experienced a cycle of guilt-driven stagnancy. That's the best way I can put that. But they've become a place where I experience God's grace in transforming me over time. God's grace in the gospel is better than all of our methods for dealing with our sin. Because only the good news of Jesus and the glorious beauty of God that it reveals can change our hearts to love him more than the things of this world. Um, let me, I'm going to close with one final note of application here. Um, I was driving home from work last night and realised that this is, I think, what we need to hear as a people. Do you see what's happened in this passage? I've said it enough times. You should, I hope you're with me here. Uh, shouldn't you should. But uh, God calls us to love him and to love him without holding anything back, whether that be our deepest desires, the every effort of our bodies or every material thing at our disposal. We are called to love the Lord with everything, fully and completely. And he enables us to do that through Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through that perfect revelation of his love. He leads us to be able to live the life of loving him, which we were made for. And you know, there's nothing I want more for this church. There's nothing I want it more to be. I want this to be a church that loves Jesus. And honestly, just a month in, I'm actually really encouraged in so many ways by the, by the seeds that are growing, by the small things that are happening, by the culture that's developing here. We love Jesus. We love God. We can grow in that. It's always at the last, at the end. But I say that without pride. I say that because, as we've said, he has changed us to love him. He's moved us in ways that we couldn't move us. In ways that all of history demonstrates. Goodness me. <laughs> in ways that all of history demonstrates that no human is able to do, right? He has done that in us. Isn't that a miracle? He has moved us to love him by his love in Jesus. And let me tell you one implication of that. As a church, we need to want to know, we need to want people to know the love of Jesus. Let that be the beating heart of the everyday life of our church, right? We want that. We want more people to know the love of Jesus and to come to love him uh, through God's grace. I don't think there's anything I've prayed for more in the last several months but that this would be a church of people where more people come to know the love that Jesus has for them. That more people would come to believe the gospel and to love God. And that's why week in, week out, right, you will hear us preach the gospel. And it's, it's, it's as it's found in the Bible, right, offering it to anyone who has not yet believed and offering it to everyone who has believed, uh, 
just to grow them in their love for God, to grow in their knowledge of his love for them. I want you to feel so confident. I want to offer this as a guarantee that if I break it, I want you to come and talk to me about it. If you have a person who is not a Christian in your life and you bring them to this church, they will hear the glorious message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, clearly preached, clearly declared every week. If you're someone who's going to be a preacher in this church, know that that's an expectation. It's up to the spirit what happens in that person's heart. We don't promise to change anyone. But we will speak that message, and I hope that you, that, that we, right? This is a challenge for me as much as anyone, are telling our friends, our, our colleagues, our neighbours, our relatives uh, as well, because we love God. We love God because of the great love we see in the gospel, and we want more to do the same. Um. Last week, I think Matt mentioned this in his sermon, although to be honest, I was holding a weeping child for most of it. Um, we, uh, I'm going to pull back some church curtains just here. We don't have actual curtains. But, uh, but uh, a way that you often do some things in church planting is that you start with a thing called a soft launch. That's what we've already done. It's, it's when you start meeting with a core group of people or start forming a core group of people who are going to be make up the, the initial church and who are going to serve and to grow together and, and, and you, you spend time laying down the doctrine of the church and, and building each other up and becoming a community of believers together. And then at some point you have a thing called a hard launch, um, which is when you go public, you know, you start a Facebook page and, and you encourage everyone to invite their friends along. And not that you're not welcome to do that at any point, right? We'll do the Facebook page, but you invite your friends. Uh, but... Uh, I want to I lay this as a challenge for all of us, myself included, my wife included, Matt included, and everyone included. Uh, if this is going to be your home church, uh, I, I want you to think through and pray through who are two people in your life who you can be living with the gospel intent to bring them along when we launch as a church. People who don't know Jesus. I ain't interested in us poaching people from other churches. Um, we, we, we want to be a church that brings in the loss and we leave the results of that to Jesus but we trust that he works through the instruments he's chosen and that's us so I want you to think through I'm going to be thinking through this and I'm going to be cultivating relationships towards this I want people to come along and hear the gospel hopefully you've already spoken it to them before they even come, right? it's not my job to tell them the gospel alone It's we are the people of God and we share the good news but that's a challenge I'm laying out there right now, 100% Think about it. Two people who you can invite along when we launch as a church and do our hard launch, if you will. Uh, and knowing full well that we need God's help in doing that, I'm going to pray now. Jesus, we are, we sing this song here, Grace Alone. Uh, it says, I was an orphan lost at the fall, running away when I heard you call. That was our state, Lord. That's us without you. We are, we are orphans. We are nothing. We have, we have no hope without you. And yet you've drawn us into your redemptive plan. You have saved all who have heard and believed your gospel. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would build us as a people who love the Lord, 
build this church to be one that is marked by love for God that springs from our, our, our knowing, knowing in the depths of our heart with our deepest thoughts and desires and will the truth that you have loved us in the gospel. Lord, let us be a people who share that good news boldly, who love you more than our own pride and more than our own public image and more than anything else. Let us be a people who share the good news. Every one of us here be people who are on fire for you, Jesus, who your spirit is filling up to share the good news. Lord, I want to pray for all of us that you would lead people into our lives, that you would encourage us through the miraculous working of your spirit in, in carrying people in who are here to hear from you, even if it doesn't look that way. I pray that you would embolden us and that everyone here would know people and that everyone here would be able to have relationships with people that they can invite, not to church, but invite to know the God of the universe who loves them. Please, Lord, build your people up as a people who love your name. Amen.